0: Let us pray. Silence in us any voice but your own gracious God. And transform us by the hearing of your word. For we pray in the strong name of Christ Jesus, who is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. The prophet Isaiah writes, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you that have no money come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food, incline your ear and come to me, listen, so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the people. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A prophet, whether in biblical times or in our time, serves two functions. Both matter. Both are needed. The first is to look at how things are and mirror them back to the community, a kind of truth-telling function. That's why prophets can be so unpopular, because our very human tendency is not to want to know how things truly are you will hear me talk about Next Church from time to time. Next Church is a group I helped to establish that is focused on the future of Presbyterian congregations and leaders. Next Church just held its annual national gathering in Seattle. Our theme was Woven, drawn from the Book of Ruth, In particular, how Ruth and Naomi wove a bond together in the face of hardship and oppression. And in that context, we heard speaker after speaker focusing on forms of oppression and racism, primarily from the Black and Native American perspective point for next church is that in order for the future church to be healthy and sustainable it must have these difficult conversations and take action next church has made a commitment that 50% of its leadership team of our leadership team will be persons of color 50% in a church that is 90% white but we've done that, which has been both the right and a difficult thing to do, because once you embrace in real time and in real life such diversity, you realize ever more deeply the impact of white supremacy and structural racism, and how important it is and how challenging it is to dismantle it. That's the prophetic role, the, the truth-telling role. It is Difficult, and not at all popular. It would be easier, not just for next church, but for all of us to pretend otherwise. To continue, as we've done for generations, to ignore the voices of people's long silenced. As our brief statement says, it's much easier, much more comfortable. So prophets lead us to places of discomfort and displacement, places we don't enjoy going to. The Next Church Leadership team has read together over the last months a book by an author named Robin D'Angelo called White Fragility, a book that has both provoked and edified me. D'Angelo writes about white fragility, The smallest amount of racial stress is intolerable. The mere suggestion that being white has meaning often triggers a range of defensive responses. These include emotions such as argumentation, silence, and withdrawal from the stress-inducing situation. These responses work to reinstate white equilibrium as they repel the challenge, return our racial comfort and maintain our dominance within the racial hierarchy. That's a stiff message. But its difficulty does not delay its truth. And once you hear that message, and once you begin to listen to and to connect with people and experiences that reflect that reality, then you have a choice to make. You can't ignore it or reject it, Seek to return to that place of comfort, or you can move ever awkwardly, ever imperfectly to a new place. Now, I know this congregation is not all white, but we are primarily so, which means that if we choose to listen, if we choose to have ears that hear, then we will be changed. Willing to live in those places of displacement and discomfort. That's the first role of a prophet, a truth-telling mirror. Willing to risk comfort and the status quo personally to lead, to lead the community to a new place, presumably God's place. Now we know in biblical times that the prophetic role led to ostracism and rejection, and even death. Think John the Baptist. Or think Martin Luther King Jr. Or think of so many other prophets you've known in your life or in the life of the church in the world. And while we're all called to be prophetic, whether as individuals or certainly as a community, some are called in particular ways with unique gifts. We should welcome them not cross to the other side of the street when they walk by or dismiss their message. The second prophetic role is related to the first. It's not enough for a prophet simply to mirror the way things are. Every time I go back to Chicago for a meeting of the McCormick Seminary Board, I am flooded with memories. I was 22 when I went to seminary, 22. What I didn't know could have filled a library. People like me would show up and realize that whatever faith had brought us to that place, whatever experience of church, whatever experience of leadership, had to be taken apart like a jigsaw puzzle in reverse. Had to be dismantled first before a new minister could be formed. And though I was just 22, that was not only true for the youngest of students but more seasoned classmates, including those who had worked in other careers before discerning a call to ministry. I kinda knew how the church worked. I'd grown up in the church, I'd served on Two sessions already, I went to a couple of general assemblies. But my knowledge of the Bible was limited and theology and church history. I was unformed, carrying questions inside of me that I didn't even know were there. Seminary, at least my experience of it, took that ball of clay and shaped it and formed it. And I was fortunate that I was able to have that experience and come out on the other end relatively functional, or at least I hope I am. Some of my friends had more challenges than that. It's one thing to take something apart, to dismantle it. How do you put it back together? How do you reassemble it? In terms of racism, that task falls on the white community not communities of color. That's important to understand. So the second role of the prophet is taking what has been dismantled and disassembled and putting it back together, not as it once was, but in a new way. In terms of racism, our example du jour, that new way cannot look at all like the old way. We can call it reconciliation, but it cannot be cheap or easy reconciliation achieved without the hard work of lament and confession and repentance and forgiveness. Only then can the new thing emerge. It takes time. But hear what it can look like. If you are thirsty, come to the waters. If you are hungry, come and eat. Eat and drink even if you have no money. Eat and drink really good food and really good drink. The South African biblical scholar Juliana Clausens writes that the job description of the prophet contains among other less than coveted tasks the ability to speak a life-giving word of hope when all the events seem to point to the contrary. For Isaiah this morning, Clausen writes, the prophet performs this task particularly well, conjuring up a world where the impossible seems possible again. Because here's the situation Isaiah faced. A people in exile, their beloved city destroyed, families torn apart, houses demolished. How can you believe in God, any God, in the face of such hardship? And the prophet does not flinch from that reality, but presents an alternative filled with hope. Not false hope, but a hopeful realism forged in deep faith and trust. So what does that look like? Here it looks like an extraordinary banquet table. I'm thinking something very close to the dinners in Corpus Christi that Julia just described. Filled with delicious food and wonderful drink and it's free, free. Take a moment to envision that, that table, the people gathered around it, the setting, the meal itself, and then take your vision and place it alongside so many other visions, especially those who right now can't possibly envision it. Klassen writes that the prophet did not have an easy task to speak a word of hope when everything around seemed hopeless. However, Isaiah succeeds in proclaiming a word that is counter to the words of the world, a word that stands over against the policies of the empire whose intent is to kill and destroy, a word that is able to imagine a world where everything is possible, where all of creation is mended and restored, where the exiles can go home and live in peace. Several weeks ago at our congregational meeting, Beth Laidlaw, deacon co-moderator, offered us all a phrase, rearranging abundance. Rearranging abundance. And I've been pondering it ever since. It was offered in the context of a discussion about church finances, though Beth meant more than that, And its application is certainly more universal than that. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Everyone who is hungry, come and eat. Everyone. Not just some, but all. Not just those who can afford it, but all. And not just a little snack. There is plenty. There is more than enough. Our culture insists on a zero-sum game, whether it's education or economic opportunity or access or power or race. And it isn't, or at least it needn't be. And because of that cultural influence, we have applied the same principles to faith, I fear. There's only so much grace only so much mercy to go around. That's why we've made the choices we've made about ordination or articulated very narrow understandings about sin and salvation. But the prophet reminds us continually and in the face of resistance and doubt that that's not the way God seems to be. Listen, God says, Listen while you are eating this delicious meal. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, one based on steadfast love. And if you turn to me, I will be ready to welcome you and welcome you abundantly. In the context of exile, that means there will be a place for you. In the the context of race, there will be justice. In the context of hunger, there will be food. And the question is not whether, but how. And the answer to how is on us. To be the vehicles through which God's justice and mercy and love become very, very real. Now it's Lent. Perhaps a part of our Lenten discipline can be to look around and look inside our own souls. Where have we accepted the myth of scarcity, per Walter Brueggemann? And where might we embrace the promise of abundance? Where can that image of the banquet, of food and drink without cost and without limit, play itself out in our own lives? or the life of this congregation, or the life of the city or the world. I've spoken of race this morning because that's what's on my heart and soul, but it can be other things, whether things of the world or things of the spirit. Listen, God says, listen so that you may live. And in that sense, we are all prophets. Called to listen, called to see, called to tell the truth, called to dwell in that place of discomfort and displacement for a season. And then to embrace and to share with hope God's steadfast love for us and for all of God's beloved children. Amen. Amen.